that would be one of my hopes is that people would read the book and think, okay, I too can have a role in making sure we have a great country, right? A country that abides by the, the Constitution, which is the thing that binds us. History constantly reminds us there is nothing new under the sun, which is why it's important to view the crises we're experiencing today as nothing new and as something that we can overcome. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Elizabeth Mitchell is a journalist and the author of three nonfiction books, Liberty's Torch, The Great Adventure to Build the Statue of Liberty, Three Strides Before the Wire, The Dark and Beautiful World of Horse Racing, and W, Revenge of the Bush Dynasty. Her new book, Lincoln's Lie, a true Civil War caper through fake news, Wall Street, and the White House is due out in October. Welcome to the podcast, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you know, I'm really happy to have you on, not that I'm unhappy with other people on the podcast. <laughs> but I got an advanced copy of the book, and I'm really enjoying it. And there's a lot of things in it that make me think of a lot of things that are going on right now in our country, which you wouldn't necessarily think with with a story about Lincoln. Before we get to, to the new book, let's little talk about, about you. First of all, tell me a little bit about your career when you got interested in, in journalism and writing. Well, in fact, I got interested in journalism at the sort of nerdy age of five or something like that, because I just started making a newspaper in my about home life that involved all the boring stories that were going on and sending it out to relatives. So I realized that actually it's a it was a very deep seated interest. But I tried to get out of doing a journalism credit in college because I explained that I would never need to get that education because that wasn't what I was planning to be. But what happened was I was very interested in writing. I loved books. I worshipped many journalists. And when I first came to New York, I started trying to do some freelance writing for just neighborhood newspapers. And the idea was that I knew that I wanted to be a writer, but I felt I needed more training to be as precise as possible and to sculpt the story in a way that would get to people right away. And so that was my beginning. And so I, I did that for a while. I was working at Penn American Center, which is the writer's organization. And I was putting together a program to bring more books to people who didn't have them across the country and left that after a while because I realized I was going to just continue being in a nonprofit world and I wanted to get a little closer to the writing. So I took a gap. I came back. I was at the very bottom of the totem pole again, and I was doing copy editing for different publications and started doing some freelancing while I was at Spin as a copy editor. And I happened to come upon a story that was kind of hot, I guess, at the time. And, you know, having having done that long form piece, it then led to an offer to take over as features editor there. Wow. Wow. And, and then you went on to be an editor at George when it launched and you eventually became, was it the executive editor? Yes. So I was at Spin and my, my main job was to do all the political pieces and the kind of investigative pieces that went along with the spirit of Spin, but not the music pieces necessarily. And so one great thing about being there, it had some weird parts to it too, was that Bob Guccione Jr., who ran the magazine, was very, he just wanted great investigative pieces that would put the magazine on the map. And so he told me that I could hire whoever I wanted and he would send them anywhere in the world. So I hired William Volman to do some very big investigative pieces. 
both in like the drug trade in Burma and, you know, the Bosnian war. I had another journalist who's acclaimed, you know, international investigative reporter who was over in the Sudan doing the March of the Green Flag. And we had a young person answering the phones who had just written some short stories. And Bob told me to take a look at those stories. And it was clear she had a lot of talent. So we hired Elizabeth Gilbert (laughs) as one of our writers. And she just went all over the place for us as well, handing in perfect copy. So the work I did there got noticed. And I got headhunted to go to George. This ambassador, William Vanden Heuvel, gave me a call. He was at Allen & Company, which was this media advisory firm. And he asked me if I I would be interested in coming up and meeting John Kennedy to talk to him about the magazine. And you said yes, I assume. I said yes. And eventually what I did was I went on, I went to the magazine as a senior editor. And then I think it was something like six months after I was there, the, you know, I replaced the executive editor who was there. And then I ran the magazine with John for the next four years. Wow. Wow. That sounds like a great experience. It was amazing. I've had writers on the podcast, you know, obviously journalists on the podcast, and I have people who come on and they say that they love writing. And you seem to have gravitated toward news writing or or nonfiction writing. You know, you had no desire to, you know, sometimes when people say writing, they think, oh, they, they want to be a novelist. I'll start out in the newspaper, but I'll be a novelist. What was it about nonfiction that kind of interests you? Well, I still am interested in fiction, but one thing, but one, and I have a, you know, I drafted a novel and we'll see what happens. But the, but I would say the main thing is this, you know, how fiction writers always say, and I, I was writing and I, the character, characters just took over and they surprised me. <laughs> I could never really get myself to the point of being surprised. You know, I, whereas in nonfiction, when you're reporting, people are constantly surprising you, you know, you, you're in an interview and um, there have been times that I've interviewed people for many days and, you know, hours and hours of long conversation. And then at the very, just as you're about to hang up, they say, oh, well, there is one other thing. <laughs> and it's always that, that just, it, it turns the story in this incredible way, you know? And so, um, so I just, I can't get enough of that experience. I find, I find it so exciting that you can go in and you have a license to talk to anyone you like. And you uh, can ask anything you're curious about. And then you can tell that story to all these people who would never know really how the world operates in this particular area that you're looking at. So that's all just so appealing to me. Yeah, I've talked to family and friends who are always, they're constantly surprised that, you know, people people tell you these things that you have no problem going up and people asking questions. But I mean, that's, that's the job. And, and that's the thing, you know, I know I, I enjoy that, the interaction with people and, and learning new things and telling their stories. I love doing that. When I interview an individual, I just love telling their story. Yeah. I mean, I always, to be totally honest with you, I always somewhat dread the beginning of it. For example, you know, you might know that experience. You're in some weird motel on a highway waiting to the moment you're about to go talk to this person you've never spoken to before. And there's just dread in your heart. (laughs) And then, uh, but every single time when I come away from that experience, something extraordinary has happened. And so, you know, I've, I've, the world has opened up to me in some new way. And so that's just too hard to give up. So what about which process, what part of the process do you, do you like, find the most rewarding? Is it, is it the, the research, the interviews? I mean, do you, do you get, you know, is, is, is the actual writing something that, that, that really thrills you? 
I mean, I love the writing in as much as there's things that I come across, say a story, and I think, oh, that would be really fun to write. You know what I mean? It's there's something particular about the world of the story or just the narrative pulse of it or something. So I have that, I do have that part to me. But I think the interviews are the greatest. And then I think I've been doing a lot of historical reporting, let's say, in the last number of years. And I obviously can't get the interviews, but you get the same kind of thrill out of diving into this life that had been lost to history and bringing it back up to the surface. And then, you know, and there's certain things where you get to come across different details of the person's life that you realize, oh, this was the moment of, you know, their real emotional crisis, or this was the moment of their bravery. And so that same kind of revelation, I enjoy a great deal. I had an experience recently where I had written a story that I've been working on for a long time, and it was all based on these old letters and articles and things. And I, and I got to a point where I, where I felt like I, you know, I was talking to the person who was, you know, been gone for a very long time, at least in his headspace. And that was really kind of, when I realized it, it was kind of a weird experience, but it was also something that was kind of like thrilling. No, absolutely. And even you can tell when you're starting to go through one of the letters, it's going to be one of those ones where the person says something so precisely or they they reveal something. And yeah, it's just such a pleasure. I mean, I posted at one point on Instagram the fact that I was so excited because I got to touch a letter that was written, you know, 150 years earlier by the main character in, and I call it a character, but the main <laughs> person, the main person in my uh, new book. And it's just to know that, you know, they wrote that on that paper, they held that you, you are now looking through it. It's, it's a kind of beautiful thing. Yeah. It's that portal to their world. You're suddenly in the room with them experiencing or seeing what, and thinking what they're thinking. That is kind of cool. How did you end up in the history game? Well, I mean, in a certain sense, why it happened is because I had small children and there was this, this, <laughs> there was this moment where you realized you weren't going to be able to just take off the way you used to, you know, at the, at the drop of a hat because someone was ready to speak to you. So there was a certain, you know, on a certain level, it got, came about through that. My curiosity would not stop. And I was, and so I started looking at stories where there were art archives that I could access and then once you get into it, then you sort of realize, too, that there's a lot of people whose stories are missing, you know, and particularly there's the stories of women. Um, and so that becomes compelling. The other thing is we're almost in this extraordinary heyday for for historical research, because all of a sudden so much has been digitized, whether it be, you know, letters suddenly scanned and you can see them no matter where you are or the little newspapers which otherwise would have been completely inaccessible. But now you can review tremendous reporting about incidents that you would never have been able to see before. And so it's hard, again, to resist that because this is this moment where stories, big events in history that we thought we knew, we can look at from a new, through a new lens. And so uh, that part keeps me coming back as well. Reading uh, Lincoln's Lie, I definitely get the sense that there's a lot of voices in it that we have not heard before. I'm thinking there's one uh, woman who's the wife of one of the one of the newspaper publishers. I would gather those are letters or something that correspondence that she had with somebody, her, her husband, maybe. 
Yeah, we have we have this great. I mean, it, it's one of those great fortunate events for a, a historian or someone writing history, which is that this couple who are both great writers and sort of journalists. He was the he ran a newspaper. She was a writer as well. But they happened to be separated for just the days around the time of this particular incident that I'm writing about. So she's up in Hartford, Connecticut with her relatives. And one funny thing I thought when I was heard complaining about the fact that since she's a Democrat and they're all Republicans, they're just at her all the time and calling her a traitor. <laughs> and so she has a headache and has to go to her room. But she's writing to her husband and not just one letter a day, but often multiple letters a day. And he's writing back to her. So we, so there's a, an incredible TikTok of, of what happened in those uh, over the course of this particular event because of that circumstance. So I guess to to first start talking about Lincoln's lie, we should. Where did you find out about this story, and what made you decide that this is a story I want to tell, but also this is a story that I think I can tell because there's so much research in it. I was working on my last book, which was Liberty's Torch, and that was the story of how the Statue of Liberty had come to be built, and I had always believed the version, which was that the French government gave it to the U.S. government, and it was just this gift of friendship. But I, in researching something else, (laughs) happened to be in the New York Public Library in the manuscript division and came across the diary of the artist who made that Bartleby. And it was him describing coming to New York and knowing no one and trying to pitch this idea of a colossus to a public that had no interest whatsoever. And so his attitude and the whole uh, nature of the visit was so different than what I had heard before. I thought that's, I wanna know more. So I researched that and found that there was this incredible story that was basically the story of how one artist changes the world. Um, the When researching that, one of the key moments is that Joseph Pulitzer, who's a newspaper owner, buys this newspaper called The World, and he's able to get it at a cut rate price because it had been so discredited because of a fake news story that it ran in 1864. And I thought that's incredible that, you know, decades later, it still would have this kind of tarnish to it. And then I looked into the details of that and realized that it was something that had been so upsetting at the time that Abraham Lincoln had gone in and arrested the newspaper editors and put military in the newspaper offices for several days. And as a free speech advocate, someone who worked at Penn American Center back in the day, I found that just so startling that Abraham Lincoln had had done such a thing. So I put it kind of on the back burner to look into it more later. And it was, again, one of those stories that the more I looked into it, the more uh, remarkable it became in terms of the twists and turns. I guess, you know, it's it's sort of what you said before about the Statue of Liberty. There was a story that would all been told about the French just gave it to us. But once you once you start looking a little deeper, you'd realize there's something something bigger here. I think we all have sort of a preconception of an idealized preconception of Abraham Lincoln and who he was. But, you know, I think a lot of people still know that he, he suspended habeas corpus, which which (laughs) opens the door for all types of shenanigans. And so, but once you, once you go down that road, it's like, well, what does that mean? And then it means throwing journalists and publishers in jail for stories that, 
were false or purportedly false. So let's talk a little bit then about, about the story itself. Well, why don't you describe it? Why should I? <laughs> you wrote the book. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, uh, obviously, I don't want to give the whole thing away. But, yeah, exactly. You know, what's yeah. The... So basically, it starts with that incident. I mean, it, there is an introductory chapter, which gives you a sense of how Abraham Lincoln himself was playing with the press for quite a while in terms of he was adopting aliases. He was writing anonymously for the newspaper. He even at one point bought a newspaper uh, in the center of the country that was German language paper. It was a secret contract and he he bought it because he knew how powerful it would be for the election. So there's things like that that sort of set the stage. But it really starts with that incident of this, you know, this report coming into New York that Abraham Lincoln has called for 400,000 new troops. And if he doesn't get them very quickly, there will be a draft. And there was a lot of tension around something like this, because not only for the obvious reasons of it was all these bodies, all these men who are going to have to go to the front and the war was not going particularly well. But also New York City the year before had erupted in incredible violence during the draft riots. And so there was also the possibility of upheaval, you know, riots, <laughs> like what we're hearing about so much now. So it hit New York like a bomb. And then it, the book goes on to try to investigate who did it, why did they do it? And each time you think you're coming to the conclusion of, you know, who the culprit is, there's yet another twist. And this follows my reporting as well. So that, you know, I'm trying to give the reader the experience of the excitement of that. But another twist about how much deeper it goes in terms of stock manipulation and right down to D.C. and the White House. Yeah, there's a lot of things going on in the book that are very reflective of things going on in the world today regarding journalism and the president and the government and the way that that relationship works and doesn't work sometimes. One of the things that I found rather funny in your book is rather early on, you you start talking about the Twitter of the 1860s, which, yeah. is, which, which is, you don't call it that, but that's how it's presented, that this is the, the miracle of the telegraph. We can instantaneously know what's happening, you know, hundreds of miles away. We, you know, people are going to be able to, you know, we've been able to communicate like never before, in, you know, instantaneously. That how people are using that to manipulate, you know, news, how they're using it to manipulate the stocks. Yeah, it's it's very reflective. <laughs> well, it's it was so interesting to me because, you know, you hear about the telegraph, obviously, and you think of it as this sort of serious staid mode of communication. But when you look into it more deeply, it was, you know, people were using it, first of all, like they used text messages to, you know, like if you wanted to switch from going to the opera to instead going to dinner, you did it by telegraph, you know, to your date of the night. And then Lincoln, who had started his presidency barely sending any messages, became basically addicted to the telegraph and he would live in the telegraph offices. I mean, some of it is very clearly that he had, you know, the most serious issues to contend with. And so he's there to see what's going on with the war. But some of it was just to read every message that was going through. So he knew what everyone was doing and had this kind of oversight and control. The people worried that public officials having access to the telegraph would have this immediate communication, you know, like lightning is the quote by one of the newspaper editors of the time. So that surprised me. And also I thought it was very interesting that Morse, who invented the telegraph, had thought this was going to be a great invention that was going to knit the country together. 
And instead, he realized that it had divided everyone because now they knew more about each other, no matter where they lived. Yeah. This is one thing us Americans can do. We know how to ruin a good thing (laughs) very quickly. I know. You know, how long did it take you to research this? Well, I had done some research. You know, I had sort of done a little here and there. I, I, and then I, in putting together the proposal, I did quite a bit and I had a very firm structure before I started writing the book in total. But I would say it was perhaps in the neighborhood of two years because it was one year of having the contract and writing the book full on and doing more research. But I had already done, you know, if you combined years, I had done more about a year before. While reporting on other things. <laughs> I know we talked a little bit about, about this, but what, what are some of the things that surprised you as you sort of unraveled this story? Well, first of all, I mean, the lead character, Joseph Howard, who is much of the focus of the book, was such a, was such a fascinating person. I mean, he's, he's a great writer, especially when he was in his younger years. He, he has this kind of flair. And one of the things that he was bringing to newspapers was this sense of an ordinary person with a sense of humor going into all these different situations. So he would, you know, when the Prince of Wales came to tour, he was there reporting on, you know, even making fun of the boring moments or, you know, commenting on the, you know, the height of the Prince of Wales. But I was very surprised how little scruples, let's say, he had in certain instances. And so that's part of the book. Okay, I didn't have an understanding of how much New York City resisted the sorrowful drama of the Civil War. It's hard to say this exactly, but it's, I didn't realize that it was like, as this one quote says, it was Vanity Fair. I mean, there were, there was great wealth. People were going to all kinds of, you know, theater productions and they were buying luxuries, you know, as fast as they could. They were just trying to make money on the stock market. There was a real lamentation that how was it possible that New York could be in this kind of party mode when the rest of the country was in such turmoil. So that idea that there was a whole crowd that missed the sobriety of the situation was interesting to me. Yeah, especially the the, the fact that they were all making money off of uh, the vagaries of the war, that that was impacting everything, the futures market and the gold market. Yeah, the idea that the Capitol Hill had, you know, all these politicians had direct lines to Wall Street and we're making money is shocking. I mean, it's shocking that people in the staff of the White House were making money. And so one thing I do feel from writing the book and while I was writing it is there is horrible as it is. There's some sort of reassurance that we're not the worst generation to ever come along, you know? So I feel that some of the people's inability to kind of get a sense of how they could do their part in the country and, you know, make you know, help us have a better society is tainted by the fact that there's this kind of despair that we've never been more corrupt. But clearly, that's not the case. Yeah, no, that's something that comes across very clearly in the book that, you know, hey, 1864 is not that not that different than 2020. You know, people still have the same weaknesses and and faults and are willing to screw over people to, to get ahead. The thing that surprised me the most is in Lincoln and in the people around him, how much on one hand, some of its pettiness, some of it's just their willingness to do so much manipulation to try to, to win out 
And it doesn't necessarily because, oh, this is for the good of the country. It's more of because I don't like that person and he's been, you know, he's terrible. You can't trust him. So I'm going to try to do that. So there's a lot of that going on. Yeah. I mean, Doris Kearns Goodwin has written well on this, but I think that Lincoln, he made a few weak choices in his cabinet so that it just created a situation there where there was almost always fighting going on between his main advisors and that caused a lot of problems. Yeah, unless have a civil war in the middle of this, that'll yeah. make it easier. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, like I said, I, I really enjoyed the book, and it you know it speaks a lot to what's going on. I think. And what are some of the things you think people who read it can take away from it? Well, one of the big things I think you can take away is that since this struggle has always been going on, the main lesson is will never be done. Like, it's not that we're ever going to have this democracy where you can just sit around and, you know, it'll just, you know, it's cooked and it's, we can all just relax and enjoy. Democracy is a really rare and fragile thing. And, and one of the things that I always found very moving when I was working on the Statue of Liberty book is one of the reasons Bartleby wanted to make a colossus was because he had seen the sphinxes in Egypt and the pyramids. And he realized that if you had something so large, it would stand the test of time. And in fact, it was to protect for the idea that maybe democracy would fail, but there would be this marker that would stand to show that at one point this miracle had happened. So part of, you know, the message of the book is heroes have to crop up all the time. <laughs> you know, in the book, there's, there's a governor who he has his own, you know, flaws, but he stands up to Lincoln when Lincoln violates the Constitution. There's an attorney general who, you know, has to take on the whole administration as well. You know, even various newspaper people also have to step up. So I think, you know, that would be one of my hopes is that people would read the book and think, okay, I too can have a role in making sure we have a great country, right? You know, a, a country that abides by the, the Constitution which is the thing that binds us. So so that would be one thing I hope they take away. The other thing is I love the press. I think reporters are the most among the most courageous people on the planet and I think that we would be lost without them and I'm sad for the demise of some newspapers but I'm thrilled about some of the nonprofits that have taken up the slack of great investigative journalism. But I think that also readers just should be skeptical. Like you should read you should read every story with the idea that it's one viewpoint and you're going to go check other sources. And I think people were more comfortable back in the 1860s with that concept than we are today. Yeah, definitely the characters, the people yeah, in, no. in, in your <laughs> no, book are, are, have their foibles and they're very admirable on one hand, but they are also very petty and uh, flawed in other ways. Which is makes them that much more real. The other advantage of the, of the book is, I mean, yes, you know, things were were terrible back then, you know, just as bad back then. We don't have yet, uh, you know, armed rebellion in in large sections of our country yet. So there's that, but there's a lot in this book that speaks to you know our democracy, and that's something that I've really enjoyed as I've been reading it. So we we talked a little bit about this book and about your research and about your writing. You know, this is a journalism podcast. We have people who, who listen to it, who love writing. You know, what, what advice would you give to somebody who has an idea, who's come across a story that they think would be a good nonfiction book? What advice would you give them? Well, first of all, any idea 
that one has, I think it's important to kind of set it to the side for, you know, a month or two and come back and see if it still has that sizzle before you get too deep into it, because there's something about an idea that's going to have the energy to keep you interested and excited for years, you know, in, in some cases, if you're working on a book and it'll have it, it'll retain it in those months. Then once you have the idea and you've started to collect some of the research, I am a huge proponent of structure. I think it, for nonfiction writing, you have to start to form it into what the story arc is. And I taught at Columbia for one session. I started by just, you know, going at the narrative nonfiction angle from a different way than that the students were having some struggle with making their information compelling enough that their fellow students were interested and you know things weren't quite coming to life and then I employed some advice that I got from a friend many years ago who is a film director and he basically listened to you know one story I was working on and he said okay too much information right here. You need to go structure it like a film. And he gave me these film books to look at. Now that you could think is just cheesy or what have you. But the interesting thing is that I've used it even in investigative pieces, just trying to help pattern the information in a way that human minds are most ready to absorb. And so it's extraordinary how much it works. And I think that when you do that, if you find that there's real gaps in the story that you're trying to tell, then you probably need to keep going back and doing more reporting because you can have all the great data that you like, but unless you can convey it to your readers in a way that's going to keep them gripped, you're never going to, you're never going to get it, you know, into their thinking. Yeah. The greatest crime. Don't bore them. <laughs> you want them to turn those pages and and see where it's going. The book is Lincoln's Lie, A True Civil War Caper Through Fake News, Wall Street, and the White House. It's coming out in October. I've been talking to its author, Elizabeth Mitchell. Elizabeth, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you very much. I really loved it. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. You can't get much for five bucks these days, unless you go to Wendy's for a $5 biggie bag. Get your choice of double stack, junior bacon cheeseburger, or crispy chicken BLT, plus four piece nugs, fries, and a drink, all for just five bucks. That was smooth, wasn't it? That's how you're going to feel when you get that biggie bag at Wendy's. U.S. price and participation may vary. Includes four-piece nuggets, small soft drink, and small fry. Prices may be higher in Alaska and Hawaii.